So I hope you've got a Bible or a device, John chapter 8, and my friend Luke Hogan is going to read part of that chapter 4. Thanks, Gary. Good morning, everyone. So I'm going to be reading John 8, verses 31 to 47. This is on page 758 in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. And if you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and am now here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Well, I look forward to uh, diving into that passage this morning. I wanted to start here again, and I mentioned this last week, three uh, training opportunities that are beginning over the summer, um, and you have the opportunity to text in. So you see the number on your screen, and you can text the right word for the right class that you might want to do. We are looking for more leaders here at Wallenstein, uh, leaders who may one day be elders at this church or maybe ministry leaders, but we want to see uh, many more people who are ready to lead others to follow Christ and to serve in the church. So we'd love to see you uh, participate in this leadership course. This is for men and or women. The preaching, teaching the Bible course is for men and for women. If you aspire to be a preacher or if you aspire to be a better Sunday school teacher, if you wanna do a better job of teaching your kids God's word, then I hope that you uh, might come to this training course. And then finally, uh, learning to be a small group leader. We uh, are in need of a number of new small groups. And what that requires is some courageous people. I love to see husbands and wives do this together who will stand up and say, we are, are ready and willing to learn how to lead a small group. So I'm hoping uh, after this morning that I'm going to see, and you can even do this, I give you permission to do this right now. Don't take half an hour to do it. But if you want to text that number right now and sign up for the course that you're interested in, that would be great. Otherwise, take a picture of it, and you can do that later. All right, John chapter 8, continuing our series called Why Jesus. And if you haven't noticed yet, 
we are in the midst of a number of chapters where the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees is just ongoing. In fact, uh, the reality is from John chapter 5 right through to John chapter 12, which is the middle third of the Gospel of John, all it is is one quarrel and argument and dispute after another between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you were writing a gospel, would you have filled it with that? I would have filled it with the miracles. That would have been good for me. Or maybe I, I would have tried to fill more of Jesus' teaching. But John chose in the whole middle of his gospel to fill it with only this issue of his conflict, the Lord's conflict uh, with the Pharisees. Now let's remember why John wrote his gospel. He tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, these are written, the things that he had written, uh, he wrote so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So you need to understand, we need to understand this, that these chapters, chapters 5 to chapters 12, this one big fight between Jesus and the Pharisees is written down and recorded so that you would believe in Jesus. The reality is that the Pharisees represent a number of things, but they represent falsehood. They represent false religion. They represent false ideas about God and about life. And the reason that it's here is John is showing us a, a vivid contrast between Jesus and the gospel and his word versus what the Pharisees taught and their religion and their legalism. And as we see this conflict, and as we see the argument, and they argue over all kinds of different things, what, what John is helping us to see here is that Jesus is the real thing. And false religion is not worth your time. Don't dabble in that. False ideas about God, don't dabble, don't, don't bother with it. What you need, and the only thing you need, is Jesus and his word. So understand this, this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospel of John demonstrates the superiority of Jesus in the Gospel over every other belief system. So here in John chapter 8, we actually want to start in verse 12 with what I'm going to call a bold claim. Jesus makes many bold claims in the Gospel of John. One of the reasons we called the series, Why Jesus? Because we want to ask him, why did you say that? How, how could you say that, Jesus? And notice in verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, that is a bold claim. Think about what Jesus is saying here. He and he alone is claiming to be the only source of light for the world. He's insinuating here that if you don't follow him, you will walk in darkness. That's a pretty bold claim. I mean, if I were to stand up here and say something like that, uh, I hope you'd recommend my firing. And yet there's people in our world who stand up and make bold claims, and I'm amazed how gullible we as human beings are to chase after the wrong people who say the wrong things. But here's Jesus, one that even atheists would tend to say, he was, he was a good man, he was, he was a wise man, he was a good teacher. And yet here he is, being completely politically incorrect, claiming that he alone is light and everything else is darkness, and that it's only if we follow him that we will experience the light of life. That's a bold claim. 
It's not the only one in this chapter. Look down at verse 31. Some well-known words, perhaps, if you know John 8. To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Well, that makes sense. A disciple was a teacher, and you're only really a disciple if you commit yourself to the teachings of that teacher. But he goes on to say, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What is he implying? He's implying here that he and he alone is the source of truth to live by, and that it's only if you would choose to follow him as his disciple and choose to believe and know his truth that you will actually experience freedom in your life. This is like John 14, later in the same gospel, where Jesus in that last supper with his disciples makes the bold claim, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Hey, let's understand this. You might want to think of Jesus as a good person. Yeah, he had some good things to say. But when you consider this, these bold claims that he makes, you actually cannot say that he was a good person if you don't think these bold claims are true. Because if they're not true, and if you don't believe they're true, then how could you possibly think of Jesus as a good person? You must think of him as a cult leader who's calling people to an allegiance to him that he really shouldn't have called them to, who claimed to know things and be things that he actually wasn't. Either this is true, and he he rightly made these bold claims, or he was crazy, or he was just trying to raise up a false following to to him knowing that he wasn't telling the truth. These are the things that Jesus said. Notice verse 51. Another bold claim. Very truly, notice the words here. Remember the old King James, what it said? Verily, verily. I had to learn. My parents made me learn some verses in the old King James. Verily, what in the world is that? Truly, truly is what it means. And here in the NIV, it just simply says, very truly, I tell you, Whoever obeys my word will will never see death. That is a bold claim. All we need is Jesus and his word, and if we believe and obey his word, we will never die. Wow, bold claims. So we ask this question before we continue examining this chapter. How could Jesus make such bold claims about himself? And remember what I've already said. Either he was telling the truth about himself, or he was crazy, or he was a wicked man trying to lead us astray. You really don't have any other choices but those three. He either was telling the truth, or he was crazy, or he was wicked. Which one do you believe? So we ask this question, how could Jesus make such bold claims about himself? And I want to see two reasons. Two reasons as we go through this sermon today. That's all we're going to do. Two, Two things that I want you to see in this chapter about Jesus that help us make sense of these bold claims. The first one is right back in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. I am, do you see it there in your your scripture? I am the light of the world. Now many have taken note of this, especially and particularly in John's gospel, that there were several I am statements that Jesus makes in this gospel And we believe that John carefully crafted his gospel around these and he purposely included these statements. 
There's something special about Jesus saying, I am, and in this case, I am the light of the world. What are some of the other ones? I am the bread of life. Uh, You can look down here. You'll see in verse 23, another one. He continued, you are from below, I am from above. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, well, just read the rest of the verse. You are of this world, I am not of this world. What he's claiming here is to be something other than just a normal, regular human being. He's claiming his origin is heavenly. And ultimately, he's pointing us to this reality that he is not just human, he's also divine. And then we have some really strange statements here that I want you to notice. The first one is in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Now you need to understand something that the English translation here, the interpreters, have added a pronoun that's not actually there in the original Greek. They did that to help us understand and to make sense of this, but I don't think they should have, because literally what Jesus says is, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. That's what he said. If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. We see the same thing in uh, verse 25. They ask him, who are you, they asked. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. Sorry, that's the wrong verse. There's another example here in this chapter where Jesus uses that same expression, I am. But he doesn't actually say, I am he. He just simply says, I am. I've got the wrong verse there. I apologize. Sorry? Murray says 28. Yes. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know, there it is, that I am and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. That's what it is. The word he isn't in the original language. Jesus didn't say that pronoun. He said, then you will know that I am. Now that's kind of strange language. It would have been provocative to the Jewish people. They might have wondered why he was speaking that way. It actually wasn't very good grammar. But then he raises the stakes at the end of this chapter. The Pharisees here are claiming to be the children of Abraham, claiming to have uh, status with God because they were Jewish and Abraham was their father. And so the uh, argument here escalates. Jesus says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, notice, he saw it and was glad. Jesus is claiming here, that Abraham had seen him. So, of course, the Pharisees say, you're not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Notice the answer. Verse 58, truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, what? I am. Now, this is bad grammar, and to the Pharisees, it wasn't just bad grammar It was heresy. It was blasphemy. Why is that? It's because way back in the Old Testament, as God was beginning to reveal himself first to the patriarchs and then ultimately to the nation of Israel, 
He came to a man named Moses when his, his people were trapped in bondage in Egypt. They were being treated as slaves. And he calls Moses at the burning bush and says, Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt. You're going to call Pharaoh to release my people. And Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, this is extremely profound. And we say, well, why would Jesus make such bold claims? Well, probably none is greater than the one he makes here in chapter 8 about being the I am. But the reason that Jesus could make such bold claims, and remember, he either is telling us the truth or he's crazy or he's wicked. Here at Wallenstein Bible Chapel, we believe this is the truth. That Jesus is the great I am. Which blows my mind to think that here in John's Gospel, we're reading about a human being who walked this very planet. You can go over to Israel. Some of you have. You can walk the same places where this man walked, and yet here he's saying to us, please understand that I'm actually the God of creation. I am the God of Israel. I'm the God who parted the Red Sea. I'm the God who brought my people into the promised land. This is why he can make such bold claims about himself. It's because of who he was. His rightful identity is to be the God-man. The Messiah. The divine Son of God. Notice, did you see it here? The response of the Pharisees and the Jewish people to these bold words. And it was immediate. They picked up stones to stone him. This was blasphemy. There was nothing for them to do with Jesus, in their opinion, except to kill him. And yet, even as they picked up stones, intent on immediately killing him for what they perceived to be blasphemy, he suddenly is gone. Did you see that? He slipped away. Why? Because the I am can do that kind of thing, that's why. He was in complete control. You'll see in this chapter and other chapters of John where it talks about his time had not yet come, meaning the time when he would go to the cross, a time in which he was completely under control. He would go to the cross when it was time for him to go to the cross because he is the great I am. So we come to this church and we sing songs about Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if we really know who he is. Do we really know who it is we're singing to? Have our hearts truly bowed and bent in worship before this one that we call Savior? Our hearts need to bend before him because of who he is. And this is why he can make such bold claims. Well, that's the first reason. The second reason is another concept that we see all through this chapter. We've already seen it here, and I'm going to call it the concept of truth. In fact, we see it back in verse 12 again, because when Jesus is referring to himself as the light of the world, he wasn't saying, I'm like the sun, I'm I'm like this beacon that glows, although uh, on the mountain of transfiguration, uh, three of the disciples actually got to see Jesus in his glory. And scripture tells us that one day, 
when we see Jesus in eternity in that great city, there will be no need for lights or lamps because the glory of Jesus is going to light that city. There's, no, there's going to be no night, and it doesn't matter if you're in the same room as him or not. The light of Jesus is going to permeate. Uh, what a glorious day that will be. But here I think Jesus is actually referring to something different. When he says, I'm the light of the world, he's not talking about how he's going to fill the world with uh, the light of his glory. I believe what he's talking about here is the light of truth. And we sometimes use the word light in that way. When we, we talk about shedding light on something, we're talking about help me understand or help me explain this to me. Or if we're lying about something, what are we doing? We're trying to keep someone in the dark or we're literally walking in darkness if we're lying about something. So I think what Jesus particularly is referring to here as the light of the world, he was the one who was going to shed light on the world in terms of truth. He's going to explain to us why are we here and why is the world here and what is my life all about and what is my purpose and how do I deal with my sin and my guilt and my shame? Jesus would be the one to come and shed light on all of that. How would he do that? By the truth. Notice he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Why would that be? Because as we follow Jesus, we become his disciple. He becomes our teacher. He tells us the truth. And now we see. And now we understand what life is all about. And no wonder he then says... If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but we'll have what? The light of life. So all through this chapter, we see Jesus and the Pharisees discussing truth and discussing God's word. And Jesus, over and over again, is claiming to be telling the truth. So remember, we have those three options. Jesus makes bold claims about himself and what he offers us. He's either telling the truth or he's... He's crazy, or he's wicked because he knows he's not telling the truth and he's trying to lead us astray. You have those three options. Notice what Jesus says about himself, verse 14. He answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, he says, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. He says, my testimony is valid. Why is it valid? Because I know, he says, I know what I'm talking about. I know where I came from. I know where you came from. I know what this is all about. Notice verse 16. If I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. Notice verse 26. Here he's referring to being sent by the Father. He says, I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. What I love about this is, by the way, Jesus is helping, he's trying to help the Pharisees see that they should trust him because he's not just here in the world on his own authority, he's here under the authority of God, his Father. What I think is cool for us is we actually find ourselves in the same pattern. Now we are sent out and the one who is our authority, the words that we come with, which are true, are the words of Jesus. So we follow the same pattern. He came in the name of his Father. He came with the words of his Father. Now he sends us out in his name with his words. He who sent me is trustworthy. Verse 28, he says, I speak 
what the Father has taught me. He's referring here to God, the same God that the Pharisees claimed to believe in. Uh, Verse 32, we saw this verse already, but he says the truth will set you free, claiming that he was the one who had truth, who knew truth, who would teach them truth. Then in verse 40, calls himself a man who has told you the truth. And then verse 45, he says it clearly, I tell you the truth. Verse 51, saying that our lives hinge on whether we obey the words that he says, which he's claiming to be truth. Verse 55, I know him, meaning his father, and obey his word. And then we have these three very truly statements. If you remember the old King James, this was the verily, verily. Verse 34, verse 51, verse 58. Why would Jesus say it twice? Why wouldn't it be enough to say truly? Well, this is the way they gave emphasis back then. They didn't have emojis. So you would say it twice. Verily, verily, or truly, truly. What is Jesus, what's his point here? You've got to believe me. I'm telling you the truth. This is not a Have you ever tried to convince someone of something that's true and they don't believe you? It's tough to do, isn't it? I mean, you, you get emphatic, you get loud, you hit the table. Blow a gasket sometimes. Jesus here is being emphatic. You've got to believe me. Remember, he's either telling us the truth or he's crazy or he's wicked. What is he saying? All through this chapter, he's saying, I'm telling you, please believe me, I'm telling you the truth. But then we have some negative examples that I want us to see here, starting in verse 37. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me. Jesus already knew there was a plot hatched against him by these religious Pharisees to kill him. You are looking for a way to kill me because you, notice what he says here, you have no room for my word. See, what we're going to begin to see now is that the words of Jesus become a kind of dividing line between people who receive his words and believe them to be true versus those who can't receive his words and don't believe that they're true. Or as he says here in this verse, you're not, you have no room. There's just no room in your heart and mind to believe what I'm saying. Just similar to what he says in verses 43 and 47. Why is my language not clear to you? You are unable to hear what I say. This is a principle that we find in Scripture. Many of us have come to Christ with a lot of questions. I'm sure a lot of you could say, well, this is my testimony, actually. I, I came to trust in Jesus because I just knew that he was trustworthy, but I didn't understand so much of what he had said or what he taught. What scripture teaches as a principle here is that it's our faith that begins to help to open our mind to understanding. Why is that? Because having believed, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and becomes our teacher. And so the words of Jesus begin to be taught to us by the presence of God within us. There are some whose hearts are hardened against God. Maybe you've met someone, maybe you've been this person in the past where it doesn't matter what you hear the preacher say or what you read in the Bible or what your mom and dad said, you are not going to listen 
because your heart is closed off against it. And this is what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. You can't hear. Or as it would say in 2 Corinthians 4, the devil's blinded you. You can't hear this. So I want us to see those verses that uh, Luke read for us earlier. So go down to verses 43 and 44. And imagine how provocative this was to the religious leaders of Israel. And as we see in this chapter, they're saying, hey, wait a second, we, we belong to, a- we are the children of Abraham. We are the children of God. And yet they hear Jesus say this. Why is my language not clear to you? Verse 43. You are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Listen to this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. This is provocative. And I want to finish and park on this for a few moments and ask us, which is more characteristic of us? Are we the people who have a soft heart to the word of God? That when we hear Jesus speak, we are all ears. In fact, it's characteristic of our life that when we have the opportunity to hear God's word or to hear the word of Jesus, we sit on the edge of our seats. We take it in. We clear our schedule. We make sure we find time for this to hear the words of our rabbi. Or is it more characteristic of us to be the people who don't take the time, don't show much interest, and aren't responsive? As a a pastor, I find this so troubling to, to be someone who preaches the word of God and in some cases sense so little response to what God is saying, to what Jesus is saying. We say we're followers of Jesus. We say we're his disciples, and yet we don't seem to have much room for his word. We don't seem to be very responsive to it. And so we close with this question. Having understood the bold claims of Jesus, having understood that he could make those bold claims because of who he is, the great I am, but now being reminded that he could say these things because he was telling us the truth, but in so doing, he's challenging us as to what our attitude is toward his truth. Did you hear what he said here? He said to the Pharisees, you are the children of the devil. Wow. That, that's offensive. I don't recommend you say that generally to someone in your life. Jesus wasn't ashamed to say it. To the religious leaders of his day who thought so self-righteously of themselves, he says, no, no, understand this. You are the children of the devil. How could you say that? Number one, there's no truth in him just like there's no truth in you. He is a liar you are a liar. What was Jesus saying in so many of his arguments? You are misleading God's people. A curse be upon you. He did that in Matthew. He called down curses upon the Pharisees because they lied to God's people. He's a liar. 
you're a liar. Notice what it says about the devil, by the way. When the devil lies, he speaks his native language. It's the only language he knows. Jesus calls him the father of lies. We saw here that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Now, maybe we don't talk enough about the devil, about Satan, but the Bible talks a lot about him. Of course, we have lots of questions. So who was the devil? And my only understanding is that the devil was a kind of spiritual or angelic being that God created alongside of probably tens of thousands, if not millions of other angelic beings who were created to serve God and to do his work and to bring him glory. But it would seem through scripture that the devil had a tremendous fall in which he was puffed up with pride, thought that he was worthy to sit alongside God or even above God, and because of that, he was cast from the presence of God and became his great enemy. So the obvious questions are, well, why would God make him? If he knew that the devil ultimately would rebel against him, why would God have ever created the devil? Good question. Let's, let's ask that question someday. I don't have the answer. Except to tell you that the reality of the devil, even in the Garden of Eden, has created a situation in which we all have the opportunity to declare our love and allegiance either to God or to his enemy. That's just always been the way it is, starting with Adam and Eve. Well, why did God allow that? Or you, we could say, well, what? so the devil falls from heaven. Why couldn't God just send him to hell then? Annihilate him. Somehow, God has chosen to allow this same battle that's playing out in John chapter 5 through to chapter 12, that's playing out in Canada, in our world, every day, this battle between good and evil, for some reason God has allowed that tension to remain, some would say so that we're not just robots. I mean, if we had no choice but to do right, then are we really glorifying God by doing right? Or if we have a choice and we choose right, is that not more glorious to God? Does that not demonstrate love? If I hold a gun to Diane's head, say, tell me you love me, it's not that meaningful as when she just comes and does that uh, on her own. So I don't, I don't know all the answers to this question, but for whatever reason, there is a devil. He's the enemy of God. And as the enemy of God, his enemy are the creatures that God has made, the human beings that God has made to be at the pinnacle of his creation, to be the caretakers of his world. world, uh, world excuse me, The devil has always attacked us. When it says he's a murderer, what does it mean? It means that he has always wanted to destroy the good that God has made. If he could turn God's people against God, then he essentially is killing them and destroying their very purpose for life. So this is the devil. I don't have time to go in much more to that. But for all of history, the devil has been speaking lies. Go back and look at Genesis 3. How did he get Adam and Eve to take the forbidden fruit? He simply told them lies. And you need to understand, every person in this room in a sense has the crosshairs of the devil on your chest do you understand that every person in this room has his crosshairs on your chest and this is what he wants if you've never trusted in Jesus if you've never come to faith and found salvation in him if you've never believed that he actually is who he says he is that he's told you the truth then he will lie to you 
ruthlessly to keep you from knowing and believing and trusting in Christ. So there's probably people in this room right now that are hoping this wraps up real quick, that thinks maybe I'm a little out of my mind, but you have a voice inside of your head saying, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true, why would you believe that? And objections coming up in your heart and mind right now as you sit here. Why? Because you have an enemy who's trying to keep you from believing what Scripture tells you. You have a crosshair on your chest. And then there's people in this room who are just all out. You are flat out following Jesus and you want to know what he knows and you want to live as he lives and you can believe you have a crosshair on your chest and what does he want to do in your life he can't take away your salvation he can't keep you uh, from being a child of God he can't keep you out of heaven you know what he can do he can paralyze your faith and I've lived this he wants to paralyze your faith how would he do that Well, he can remind you of sins that you've committed in the past or maybe even recently. We think the devil's main attack is to tempt me to sin. Well, he does that. But you know what he really wants? He wants you to sin and then he wants to shame you. He wants to rub your face in your sin. He wants you paralyzed from shame. Because if he can paralyze you with shame, you won't volunteer to come to the leadership class. You won't volunteer to serve in the church. You won't stand up and be a leader in your home. He's got his crosshairs on your chest and he wants one thing. Paralysis. And then there's some of us in this room who, as far as we know, we've, we've believed this. We have trusted in this. But we're actually, we, we are those people who don't, we don't sit on the edge of our seat for the word of Jesus. We, we are not seeing him transform our lives. We've car, car, compartmentalized Jesus and church and Christianity as this little part of our life. Or maybe it's a sticker that I put over my life, but it's not really my life. And Satan's desire for you is to stay right there. Don't move. Stay stuck paralysis this is what Satan is doing in this room right now in every life and what is the solution the solution for us is to bow the knee to Jesus to become passionate followers of Jesus you say well aren't I a Christian by faith yeah this is how you show your faith surrender your life to Jesus wave the white flag of faith surrender to him give your life over to him Jesus said it this way take up your cross that's what faith is it's the surrendering of our life to the Savior who is so good at keeping it and saving it and we have this discipleship path on the wall for a reason And wherever you are on this path, Satan has his crosshair on you and he doesn't want you to take another step towards Christ. And maybe some of us here today, this morning, if we're honest, we've got to say, yeah, I haven't taken a step in a long time. And maybe today is the day if you're hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, if you're hearing Jesus calling you, that you're that person who's been separated And maybe today you've heard for the first time and realized that Jesus is who he says he is. He does what he says he does. 
you're the person who's been searching and you've just been stuck there for so long and you're kind of waffling in this decision, will I follow Jesus? There is no one else to follow. Only Jesus. Turn to him. Come to him by faith. Come to the cross. Or you're, in that, you're that person that's starting and you've been stuck there for so long and maybe you haven't been baptized and you just haven't made choices that would help you grow in your faith. It's time to stop being stuck. Move. Follow Jesus. It's the safest place, the safest road to be on this road of following the one who is the great I am, the one who tells us the truth, the one who died to save us. And if you're growing and being strengthened in your faith, keep going. And if there's someone sitting beside you who's growing and being strengthened in their faith, turn to them and say, keep going. This is what life is all about. It's all about Jesus.